CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. This is The Hash Podcast. Stay informed with the latest on Bitcoin, ETH, the metaverse, Web3, and more with stories that matter to the crypto world, all on The Hash for your ears. You're listening to the Coindesk Podcast Network. Hey, everyone. It's your favorite thing to do midday. It's The Hash on Coindesk TV. I'm Jen Snassi. We got Will Foxley and Zach Seward with us. Today, we are bringing you the latest and greatest in this crazy thing we call crypto. Zach, you got our first story. What's up? Yeah, I do. Let's go to Hong Kong. We're going to talk about uh, interactive brokers uh, setting up a institutional offering over in Hong Kong. This is rolling out Bitcoin and ETH trading to professional investors over in Hong Kong. And I think it really speaks to the shifting geographical landscape, especially in Asia, where the mood around crypto is a little bit less dour than it is over here in North America. Obviously, with these recent SEC actions, the mood in American crypto is a bit dark. That said, over in Hong Kong, we're seeing an institutional product roll out in addition to some other interesting developments relating to retail. So a couple things to talk about. I think uh, Hong Kong obviously has been maybe making a play for some of its former glory as kind of one of the original Asian crypto capitals. Lost a little bit of that shine to Singapore. But even beyond that, you know, Korea, Japan, there's still a lot of excitement in those markets while over in the West, things are a bit bleak. So again, let's go to Hong Kong, talk about the situation there. Definitely a very important part of the crypto ecosystem. And it has been for quite a while. A lot of trading firms set up there, a lot of different legal entities running out of Hong Kong. Hasn't really been in the spotlight the last few years, though. A lot of eyes have been on the United States or Western Europe. That's been where a lot of the developers have been. That's where a lot of the action has been. Uh, obviously, we are living in a new regulatory regime with crypto as well. Zach was just mentioning the SEC stuff. So I think people are going to start looking internationally. And I think Hong Kong is a strong contender for where people might look towards because it has strong government. It has clear rule of law and there's a lot of capital there, right? Like it's a highly developed country. So oftentimes we do talk about other jurisdictions on the show that might be an interesting place for crypto to go. But oftentimes those places are still, you know, they're, they're building into it. Hong Kong really has a lead on a lot of other jurisdictions. Uh, we saw some other reports from Reuters this week talking about how they might open up uh, more crypto trading to retail in that country. Uh, so definitely some highlights there. The one thing I do want to draw back here, maybe throw it over to you, Jen, and maybe, maybe if we get Zach back. I'm the only one you can throw it to. Well, I, I guess maybe we'll get Zach, maybe. 
The one thought I did have about this actually was going back to what happened with the conflict between Beijing, uh, the Communist Party of China, and Hong Kong during the movement between Hong Kong going from British rule over to Chinese rule. That happened about two years ago now, and a lot of people at the time thought that the Chinese uh, communist government was going to come in and just smack down on everything. Hong Kong had like this autonomy, it had its own rules and regulations, and there was some thought that the communist party is going to come in and just squash that, and crypto obviously would be part of that. So I think a lot of people were waiting for that to occur. Doesn't really seem like that quite happened. There was definitely like a lot of changes. Uh, there's a lot of ongoing democracy protests in the area to this day, and for good reason. But in terms of crypto, it doesn't seem like there's been a lot of change. And if they continue to push forward with like retail options or interactive brokers, things like that, there could be good things in the water for Hong Kong. I'll throw it over to you, Jen. Yeah, it was so interesting for me to read this story, given what's happening in North America right now, right? The user experience part really stuck out to me. So as part of this product, clients are going to be able to invest in Bitcoin and Ether from a single platform. So that will be like you go to one single dashboard, you see your Bitcoin, your Ether, your stocks, your options, your futures your bonds. I really think that we've spoken about this a lot on the show, that this is kind of like the future of not only just retail investing, but professional investing. It was interesting to see this come out of Hong Kong, though, Will. I was going to ask you to do a little history corner, which you did, because as it's been accepting to crypto, I feel like they've been pumping the regulatory break lately, and I wouldn't have expected to see this happen at this time, especially given what's going on with FTX. Do you think we're going to see more of this in Asia? I think so. Uh, I think one thing we should also point out is that FTX was actually first based in Hong Kong, which is a little interesting mm -hmm. note here. They had a trading firm based out of Hong Kong. They actually ran a lot of their operations out of that area as well. In terms of like Asian trading communities or the growth of crypto in Asia, it's difficult to put everyone on the same plane. I think geographically, we might like to do that, like in the sense that we do that with the United States. But as anyone who knows, San Francisco, very different from New York. San Francisco, very different than London. San Francisco, very different than Berlin. It's just like that over in Asia. Singapore, Hong Kong, Tokyo. Like We often classify all these countries or these cities together for crypto adoption, but it's really quite different. Tokyo and Japan has a very strong regulatory regime, right? It's, it's been there for a very long time. This goes back to the Mt. Gox era, where a lot of people lost a lot of Bitcoin. Japan came and regulated the market very quickly. Singapore has been a little bit more loosey-goosey. That's why you see some people hanging out there. That's why you see some people uh, with that a lot of people don't like investing in that area. But they're also like a little more free. So you do see a lot of startups boot up in Singapore. Hong Kong, I think it's sort of like a middle ground and just in terms of how I think about these things. Uh, it has a lot of capital, it has strong rule of law, and it could be a good place for crypto startups to flock to. Zach, welcome back to the show. We missed welcome you. Welcome back, Zach. We're still we on your topic. Hey, guys. Power went out. There was wind outside. So mm. I don't know. I may lose mm. you again. But it is so good to be back in the internet's warm glow. Good. Thank you so much. Good to see you. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, we'll leave that one there. And I'll pick up the next story. We're actually going to go back mm. into our time tunnel and move to yesterday where we talked about the SEC clamping down on top of hedge funds, pensions, or anyone else in the space who wants to work with crypto. We're going to revisit the topic because we have a nice piece from Coindesk reporting on this as well. Yesterday, the report was from Reuters, and now we're going to talk about it from the Coindesk angle, which basically breaks down the fact that Gary Gensler and a lot of other people at the SEC are not fans of crypto, and they want to protect traditional finance from crypto. And really, they're pulling away a lot of power from crypto custodians' hands 
and moving it into traditional finance. So according to this piece we have here, which definitely go check out on the website, you see that Gensler and other commissioners at the SEC, they want to allow only traditional finance companies with a lot of the regulatory checks that are in place today to be able to custody funds. The rationale for that basically goes into the commingling of funds. If I have token A and token B in a treasury and they're supposed to be in different places, well, a lot of these crypto firms historically have just put those funds all into one address or one wallet. And that's led to a lot of loss of funds. As Gary Gensler says in this piece, you end up with a lot of people in line at bankruptcy. Sort of a wink and a nod to FTX, uh, which definitely was the case there where they were commingling a lot of funds. The thing I have here, the nitpick, maybe it's not even a nitpick, it's just kind of calling it out. The fact that they're using this FTX uh, case as an excuse for moving forward with this new proposed regulation. I don't think it's great because FTX was offshore of the US, right? And it was serving a lot of international clients that were not under SEC jurisdiction. FTX US, we're still looking through those books. They might say that those funds are commingled. There seems to be some debate going back and forth. We'll have to wait for more chapter 11 information to find out. But a little nitpick there. Zach, I'll throw it over to you for your take on this revisit. The vibe on a Will's history corner real quick. I mean, I think it was Winston Churchill who once said, let no crisis go to waste. And the FTX crisis is certainly a big crisis Beautiful. that's being exploited across the political spectrum to further entrench like existing views of what crypto is and isn't. And I think we're seeing this really like ossify, especially on Capitol Hill, along party lines, right? I think Democrats are seeing crypto as this big, bad, exploitative thing. You know, they see the FTX thing uh, as sort of damning evidence that this is a corrupt industry that cannot be brought into regulatory purview in a meaningful way. Republicans are tending to see it a bit differently. They see FTX as a failure of those pesky regulators. Why didn't the SEC do something? And why are they doing this power grab after the fact when they weren't able to protect consumers prior to this big blow up? So I think what we're seeing here is sort of this political process unfold this regulatory process unfolds, and it's getting really interesting in DC and potentially quite worrisome for the industry. I think specifically like that stablecoin action against Paxos with, with BUSD, you know, if that's another prong of this attack that is happening, that one I think maybe has broader ramifications that are quite scary. This one, I see it as maybe, you know, secondary to uh, the importance of that stablecoin action that we're seeing, but it's certainly another part of this sort of multifaceted approach to a bit of a crackdown or a bit of a reassessing of who and how, like, like how this industry should be regulated and by whom. So yeah, keep watching DC. There's gonna be a lot of news out of DC in these coming months because this is sort of like regulatory time, not crypto time. It takes a few months for this stuff to hit the, to hit the ground and we're seeing it really, uh, really ramp up right now. So yeah, interesting to get some more details from Jesse Hamilton, one of the best uh, crypto policy reporters in the biz. So uh, thanks for fleshing out the initial stuff that we had yesterday. Jesse, appreciate it. Jen, I'm going to toss it to you though. Yeah, so the SEC said that an appropriate custodian would generally mean a chartered bank or trust company or broker dealer registered with the SEC. I thought this was super interesting because in January, we had regulators warn banks against crypto. So we have the SEC saying, you know, if you want to do this, you got to work with, with chartered banks. And then we had some other regulators, I believe the Fed and the Office of the Comptroller saying, banks, you should actually look at crypto as something really risky and something really volatile and not get involved with it. And so I, I hate to, to put the tinfoil hat on. I could be Wendy and put the tinfoil uh, crown on. But I just really think that they know what they're doing. They're really pushing crypto 
into a corner where it's going to be super hard for people to interact with it. So that's just my take. I never have a good take on any regulation story right now. But Zach, what, what other thoughts do you got? I mean, that's exactly why I think the stablecoin thing is so big, right? If that's the big on-off ramp that people use to get into crypto, to trade within crypto, and then ultimately to cash out of crypto, if that point of access is significantly choked off, as is potentially indicated by this action against Paxos and its involvement in BUSD, that I think is like, you know, potentially the biggest place in which what you just said, right, putting it into a corner, making it kind of unusable to most people, that's quite bad. So I think that one, I think I'm going to watch that one most closely. And then some of these sort of secondary issues such as this one are certainly in the mix. But um, I think you're right, Jen, like the putting crypto in a corner and sort of putting it on a path toward making it just really onerous for most people to use kind of seems to be what's happening here. And it's a bit striking. So anyway, Will, your thoughts? Actually, going to throw it back to you in a second, Zach. So in 2020, 2021, we did a lot of reporting for Coindesk about all these different bank charters that people are trying to get all these licenses and regulations that different people in the industry are trying to get, Coinbase, Genesis, Anchorage, stuff like that. Like They all wanted these just licenses so they could operate within the banking space and get access to federal funds account, get access to uh, more government dollars, get access to more banks. And now we're starting to see that stripped away a little bit, maybe. That's my reading of it, or at least like they're halting the progression of it. So definitely sort of, sort of feeds into like that Operation Choke Point 2.0 and the, the starving of liquidity in the space. But I want to throw it to you, Zach, and understand that topic a little more since you edited all those pieces. Yeah, I mean, the crazy thing is that Paxos was one of those things that won an OCC charter, right? They were like the third federally regulated crypto, quote unquote, bank, right? They earned that provisional trust charter. And now they're the ones seemingly just by guilt by association, the fact that one of their, one of their main products touched Binance, uh, they're, they're the ones who are now in the crosshairs. And I think uh, you know, Paxos has gone and said, hey, we're going to fight this. Um, I think Coinbase came out and said, hey, whatever, we're going to support this as well. Or actually, sorry, that may be a mistake. But should it ultimately extend to Circle? There were some rumors that were uh, seemingly batted down quite quickly yesterday that this had also extended to Circle. You know, that's another sort of big industry player that can fight some of the logic that's being put forth in this SEC suit. So the fact that I think that the OCC stuff didn't protect Paxos in this instance um, is, is, is crazy. It sort of like complicates the picture of, okay, cool, we can regulate this within the existing sort of financial regulatory apparatus and it's going to be fine. I think that kind of brings that into question even, right? Like not only are we going to force these companies to get a high degree of licensure in these realms, but that's still not going to preclude you from being subject to SEC action. Looking back on that, it was like, oh, okay, we're going to get an OCC charter. Everything's going to be fine. Well, at least in the example of Paxos, that didn't turn out to be the case. So whatever that means for the other things out there, I think is the open question right now. Jen? Yeah, I was going to say the same thing. I was going to point to the fact that there are so many levels of government and regulation. And the article pointed to, you know, like Wyoming, for example, who has some regulation that is different from the rest of the country, different from federal law. And the response that the SEC gave or that was noted in the article was that SEC officials said that as long as a company can meet a list of requirements, they can seek to act as a qualified custodian. For me, this is just like another vague statement that they're saying. What is the list of requirements? How can people in the industry be compliant? I just feel like we wouldn't have all of this back and forth if it was made clear. And at this point, I just think it's not being made clear on purpose. It feels like an easy solution. It feels like if you were to go into the operations at the SEC and say there's like a lot of back and forth going on here, 
how can we make this easier with the process? It would be an easy fix. So I hope that we get that, but I am not optimistic about it. We'll give it to Will for final words. No, I'm with you. I'm not super optimistic. I think we're going to see more of these actions and hopefully the industry has deep pockets enough to hire some lawyers and lobby against it. That's my only take. We are going off to NFT land. So after that Rihanna NFT, music NFTs are back in the news. So former Warner Music CEO Stephen Cooper has joined one of's board and Napster, remember them, acquired NFT music platform Mint Songs. Mint Songs allows artists to turn their music into NFTs and create exclusive art for fans, while one of is a music-focused NFT platform that signed a three-year partnership with the Grammys. One of is venturing out into different categories. I think they're doing like more corporate and travel NFTs. We saw them partner with Amex in Turkey at a luxury hotel last year. Will, I'm tossing it off to you. Are music NFTs having a comeback? I have actually a different corollary. Remember like how all these regulators hop into high VC spots, like your Brian Quintez jumps from like CFTC over to the A16Z. I think we're seeing a similar thing with these NFTs, right? Where people from high level executives and media companies are going to jump into these NFT spots. They're going to be on the board. They're going to be executives. It's just like a very natural progression, right? I want something fun. I want something sexy. I want something interesting. So I'm going to jump over into like this new NFT startup that has something to do with media and call it a day. So that's my big takeaway from it. <laughs> from like an NFT perspective, this just kind of follows a trend we've been seeing for a while, right? Like a lot of these media companies, they're always asking what's next. And frankly, they're always looking for more revenue sources. It's really hard to work in media. The margins are always very thin. Uh, things are very volatile. And guess what? There's a new thing to make revenue. So why not mint some NFTs and have some fun with it? I don't see these things going very far. I haven't been a big fan of a lot of NFT projects. And I'm not a big fan of a lot of these music NFTs. Like, I'm sorry. I think Spotify and others beat you to the spot. And there's not going to be a lot of ways to build around that. That's my take. I think Back you're going to be you. eating your words, Will. It wouldn't be the first time. Either. I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, this is goals. Like, may we all have prominent <laughs> careers to, after which we can mm. just join boards of directors and get paid on some newfangled thing based on the old-fangled thing that we had previously mm -hmm. mastered. I'm trying to be like this. This guy's like 75, 76. He'd like stepped down from Warner Music, and now he's doing one of, which to my mind is the biggest thing in Tezos land, right? It's the Tezos, Tezos NFT platform. And you see Tezos, it sort of is still out there making a push into sort of the mainstream awareness. You see it at City Field of the New York Mets. Baseball season is coming back. Spring training, everybody. Will, my baseball takes Ugh. are going to come back. I have bad news for you. Anyway, that's, um, that's so Tezos is doing this stuff. This is the big Dapper Labs with Flow, Tezos. This is that sort of big mainstream NFT push. And I think what they're doing with this thing is they're trying to bring on a legit titan who's been in the entertainment industry for a long time. They're looking to bring some of that experience into the fold to say, okay, how do we like level up our game so that this doesn't just remain some niche thing that probably too few people know about, even despite some high profile partnerships with the Grammys and others. But hey, who knows? Still, career goals. It's complete career goals. I think as much as we talk about, you know, we need mainstream adoption, we need people who are not operating in crypto to use these things, this is the way to do it, right? To get people who have spoken to the mainstream in very traditional ways for so long to come in and look at what's happening and give some advice based on their experience. I just want to shout out Napster. Like Napster really, I want to be like Napster. 
I want to just survive through decades, <laughs> rebrand, be able to operate in Web3, acquire up new cool NFT platforms. Like Napster is just doing it. I think Napster has also lived through the music industry for so long to be able to take on these new platforms like Mint Songs and then apply some of their, you know, experience magic to the, to the projects. Zach, to your point, one of already has a big music heavyweight behind it. I don't know. I think Quincy Jones was a co-founder and Quincy Jones Productions is one of the big backers there. So maybe, maybe that's how they've been able to be so successful with those mainstream NFTs. Jen, I have questions. Is this like I'm real Napster me. or is this like the thing that happened? Was it with like LimeWire? Remember there was like these ghosts of like there early like internet. That there's like a little bit of juice left in these brands. <laughs> and then they like say that they're going to do crypto stuff. But it's like unclear if it's the original company or like someone who bought name. Is this the real Napster? Is this that? So I am not 100% clear on that. I think it is. I think the real Napster rebranded as a streaming service and they've been operating as a streaming service for a while. They have a venture arm called Napster Ventures. That's who has um, acquired Mint Songs. And so I believe, I stand to be corrected, that this is the Napster who has survived the test of time. But I will check and tomorrow I will verify. Zach. Okay, no, I mean, I, I take your word for it. I think this is a great exit for Mint Songs. Like, congrats on starting up, you know, a music NFT platform, seeing some, you know, early success. I mean, Jen, to your original question, can music NFTs bounce back? Bounce back from what? Like, they had a few, like, That's buzzy true. moments in which it was going to be, like, this cool it's thing like, where, like, kind of artists, like, were able to get direct revenue. Amazing press cool. releases. Artists should be able to get direct revenues. They should be able to sort of, like, go around these existing gatekeepers that take a big cut of their money, right? Spotify is great. You get like one cent a stream or something like that. I don't know, probably even less. So anyway, it did present this alternative model. And then in the heady days of crypto, I think there was a lot of excitement around what that potentially represented, but it didn't really click, right? We're all used to having music sort of on demand at our fingertips, the world's library of all music available to us without having to pay for you know, a copy of it, right? So I think there still is a lot that needs to go into sort of this consumer education part of why you would buy a music NFT. Mm -hmm. Like it, you get to support the artist, cool. Maybe it entitles you to some additional perks, cool. But beyond that, I think it's still fuzzy as to whether or not this is actually going to uh, resonate with folks in a big way. Um, so yeah, congrats on the exit though. This is cool that, that they're now associated with the big brand. Before we go into the next thing, the chief technology uh, officer and head of product of Mint Songs is now helping Napster with their Web3 foray. So strategic on both sides. But uh, Will, take us off to El Salvador or Texas. Where are we going? We're going to Texas. Kind of usher us away from this Napster talk. No more of that. Let's talk about Texas. And let's actually talk about some real adoption. El Salvador looks to be opening up an embassy, a Bitcoin embassy within Texas, according to a tweet from El Salvador's U.S. ambassador to uh, to the U.S. This is a pretty interesting little move here. They also opened up one in Switzerland last year. The goal being that they want to increase adoption of Bitcoin. El Salvador, of course, is famous for adding Bitcoin to its list of legal tender within the country and then spurring on people to start using Bitcoin for purchasing things. The plan didn't go quite as well as the press releases did, uh, but you know, option takes a little bit of time. And it's a pretty cool initiative to see like a U.S. state working with another country. Texas, of course, has really rebranded itself as the Bitcoin mining state. So 
lot of different uh, branding things working in line together here. Did not have to throw this one down to you. We only got like two minutes on this topic, but I know you're a big fan of all adoption stories and you love some good marketing, like <laughs> both those things. Love it. I love good marketing, love adoption. So I remember when El Salvador got made Bitcoin legal tender and we said, what's going to happen to El Salvador in the bear market? I never would have thought they would be traveling around and influencing governments and working with them on these Bitcoin embassies. So kudos to them. They have really persevered through tough times and here they are going international. I guess what I want to know from this story, I know we only have a few seconds left, is what is going to happen at these Bitcoin embassies? Are they really just this monument, this ode to Bitcoin in jurisdictions that are accepting of crypto? We're going to have to go and find out. Buy a ticket to Consensus. Check it out with us. I don't know where Ooh. in the state of Texas this is, but we should go drop in on it. April 26th or 29th, Austin, Texas. Mm -hmm. Who's wow. coming? What a good plug. Anyway. What right, a that good, was a good plug. plug. That was probably in Austin. That was, that was pretty smooth. All right. Anyway, uh, that's it for the show today. We've got a few <laughs> seconds left. Thanks for being here. Sorry my power went out. That was hmm. not great. Anyway, Zach, <laughs> Jen, Will, we'll see you tomorrow. Bye. Bye. <laughs> You've been listening to The Hash on the Coindesk Podcast Network. We would like to hear from you. So if you have any questions or comments, please reach out to us at podcasts at coindesk.com, subject line, The Hash, or leave us a review on your favorite podcast player. Thanks for listening. 